Welcome, this is Philippe Albuquerque. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. And today is the next in our series of uh, JNIS podcasts. Uh, I'm thrilled today to welcome Mike Levitt and Colin Dierdain, uh, who will be discussing their recent point counterpoint on intracranial venous sinus stenting, which will appear uh, in an upcoming print issue of the JNIS and is currently on the JNIS uh, website. So specifically regarding these two manuscripts, this is one of the first point counterpoints that the JNIS has uh, put together. Uh, We are thrilled to have these authors uh, specifically Uh, Mike Levitt penned the point, which is dural venous sinus stenting should be considered a first-line treatment option for select patients with idiopathic intracranial hypertension. And Colin penned the counterpoint, along with Michael Wall, uh, entitled Stenting for Idiopathic Intracranial Hypertension Should Be Trialed. So welcome, Michael and Colin. Thank you again for your time today. Thank you, Philippe, and Michael, too. It's, it's a real privilege to, to participate. Pleasure to be here. Prior to our discussion, I would like to have a word from our sponsors. Rapid Medical pioneers the only responsive neurovascular devices for greater control of procedural success. Now with best-in-class deliverability, the Tiger Retriever 17 adjustable clot retriever provides the lowest delivery forces across three millimeter devices. Combined with the unique ability to reduce the device during retrieval, why choose between safety and efficacy when you can achieve both? Well, uh, certainly this is a, a topic that has gained tremendous popularity, not only on the pages of, of the JNIS, but in discussions at our society meetings really throughout the world, and is a procedure that has gained a good deal of traction in our community. Mike, I wanted to start out with you discussing some of the challenges that have faced the treatment of this select group of patients and really trying to get your vision as to which patients are the ideal candidates for venous sinus stenting. Thank you. And it's an honor to to be talking about this. It's something that uh, is a really important and I think growing topic, as you said. I think that in considering the two positions, you'll find there's more overlap than disagreement. This is a really challenging disease. And I think the challenge relies on sort of two two reasons. One is that it's a really heterogeneous disorder and in terms of its symptomatology and probably its etiology, although we don't understand it. And two, it's been a challenge because no treatment is really very good for this disease. So when I approach IH, certainly in, in our multidisciplinary clinic, What we're really focusing on is that this is an ophthalmological disease that happens to have a neurosurgical or neurological underpinning. But the focus in my consideration of treatment for this is almost always through the lens of the patient's vision. So when I approach a patient with IIH, the first step is to get objective visual measurements, primarily visual fields and recordings of retinal nerve fiber layer thickness. Uh, through OCT or at least a somewhat objective 
uh, characterization of papilledema. And that's really going to tell you whether the patient is going to require a more aggressive treatment, which could consist of surgery or stenting, or whether medical management will be sufficient. And I think if you approach patients in this way, and I don't want to say ignore some of the more difficult to characterize symptoms, such as pulsatal tinnitus and certainly headache, but if you put those aside and focus on the objective visual findings, then you can start to categorize patients in a systematic way. And from there, I think that the data from, for instance, the Nordic trial on acetazolamide are fairly clear that for patients with mild disease, that acetazolamide is appropriate. And so patients that can tolerate that, they're medically managed. And I think if those patients tolerate that medication and their vision is stable, then that's the path that they take. I think that when you start to consider intervention it's really for two reasons. So patients who have progression of their disease, or I I should say very severe disease on presentation. So that would be, in my shop, would be considered a parametric mean deviation on Humphrey visual fields of at least negative six in the worst eye. Then you start to consider, well, they have bad enough visual loss that it's going to interfere with their ability to do things. And they're not getting better on acetazolamide treatment. Weight loss or gastric bypass is a, an intriguing option, but and maybe more so with new medications, but it's just not feasible for a lot of patients. I should step back and say, when I consider a patient for stenting, the first thing I ask the ophthalmologist that I work with is, would you want this patient to be shunted? And I feel that the bar should be set as non-surgical or surgical intervention. Once the patient has disease severity, in an ophthalmologically objective way that, is, that meets the criteria for surgical intervention, then the discussion of what type of surgery can happen. In my opinion, the bar should be the same about surgical intervention, whether it's shunting, optic nerve sheath fenestration, which we rarely do, or uh, endovascular venous sinus stenting. And if you have that criteria, then you're going to approach patients consistently You're not going to be distracted by difficult to manage or difficult to follow and characterize subjective symptoms. And I think you're going to have a cleaner population for which you can derive the most benefit, which to me is primarily an ophthalmological outcome. Colin, uh, would you agree with that? And perhaps you can touch upon some of the results. You mentioned in your counterpoint, idiopathic intracranial hypertension treatment trial combining acetazolamide and low-sodium weight reduction diet. Has that trial impacted the way you manage patients? And similarly, asking you the same question, what is your initial approach to this patient population? Sure. I think uh, Mike's response is a very thoughtful, responsible, considered way of, of handling these very difficult patients and partnering with a good, interested neuro-ophthalmologist in the care of these really complicated patients is really critical. And uh, there's just several buckets to, to break down. And I think Mike described very well the patients with documented, clear, objective visual loss, you know, or, or risk of visual loss. And, and those patients that are medically refractory not tolerating acetazolamide or not not responding 
those are patients that are going to get treated one way or the other. And the data for stenting is just as good or better as it is for shunting or for these other procedures. And that's a very difficult group to study, frankly. It would be wonderful if if we could set up a trial to, to compare optic nerve fenestration and shunting versus stenting to get better information on who responds to what, but that's a difficult group. The area which is less clear and more in great need of better data are the patients. There's there's several different buckets. One of them is the patients that are doing okay with medical management, but high dose one to two grams of acetazolamide but most patients don't like that. And uh, their kidney stones, um, it's not tolerated that well. So what we call about medically refractory is a kind of a, certainly if visual fields progress, that's a, a treatment failure, but there's a lot of people that just don't tolerate these drugs. And that is a population that's that we need better data on the relative risks of this procedure versus versus medical management for the patients that are stable. And then finally, and Mike touched on that, there are a lot of patients that are being treated for headache in our community. And these patients are really miserable and and there may be benefit. You know, if they have a big gradient and they've got something in the sinus, their patients do respond to this procedure. But again, we don't really have good risk benefit data on what the complication rates are from venous sinus stenting, uh, which are not zero um, and can be catastrophic. And we also have some issues with long-term uh, outcomes because recurrence rates are fairly high. Uh, and which patients do, do we have recurrences? Certainly there's some anatomic predictors, but we don't really have that down yet. There's still there's still some things evolving too in terms of better stents that can be navigated more easily and perhaps less in a less complicated way. And then finally, you mentioned to bring up the IIHT trial. That was a, a randomized trial of high-dose acetazolamide versus placebo for patients with, with IIH. And I think they had to have mild visual loss between two to seven negative decibels, which a negative 10 is a 10x loss of visual fields. It's a logarithmic scale. and they found that the high-dose acetazolamide group had a better outcome in terms of stabilization of these visual fields compared to the placebo group. Uh, the treatment group also had some had a higher weight loss, although it appeared to be the benefit appeared to be independent of weight loss. But um, like Mike had mentioned at the beginning, it is a complicated um, disease, which is manifested in different ways, maybe multifactorial. And it's going to be important for our patients to in our field to parse out better the subgroups that we're talking about and study them better than we have so far to define what the best treatments are for these patient populations, um, because they are really distinct. I completely agree with you, Colin, and I think you touched on some of the issues that make looking at this in a prospective trial challenging. Mike, you touched in your article 
basically about the fact that this is a multifactorial disease and one that is often managed through a multidisciplinary fashion. I know you and I have worked for years on getting a, a trial up and going, the open up trial, and I think this has been really one of the, the major challenges that we face is the multidisciplinary uh, feature of these of these patients. The fact that we're relying on uh, the headache team to analyze them, or relying on neuro-ophthalmologists who may be off-site and have private clinic hours and so forth, and then uh, obviously uh, relying on other specialists such as neurosurgeons and, and ophthalmologists uh, who perform the optic nerve sheath fenestration. So, yeah, it's a it's a big team to corral for, as Colin mentioned, uh, a group of patients that uh, that can certainly have multifactorial issues. Mike, maybe you could touch upon how you would envision a prospective trial and which particular subgroup of patients do you think we'd get, you know, the so-called most bang for our buck in analyzing? Sure. I think that the concept of the prospective trial, of course, is what we always want. And I think the problem is that we rarely get it. Um, and one only has to look at the failed site trial, which uh, was a, a trial designed by the neuro-ophthalmological societies to answer a question of VP shunting optic nerve sheath fenestration or medical management for patients with moderate IIH. And that trial was open for seven years and they enrolled six or eight patients total across multiple sites and then they canceled the trial. And this was just the ophthalmological group that ran the the medical management IIH study that we're referring to. Even if you want to leave stenting out of it and consider shunting the sort of gold standard and you want to leave out the neurointerventional community, just recruitment for these trials is a huge challenge. But I think in an ideal world, I want everything all at once. I think that the target population are the patients who either fail medical management or have severe disease. And I think defining those patients with a parametric mean deviation of six or worse is a reasonable lower bound. You don't want to make a trial too uh, stringent because you're gonna have trouble recruiting. You don't wanna make it too liberal because then you might lose the signal and the noise. And I think that for those patients with moderate to severe ophthalmological disease, we know that acetazolamide is either not going to be enough or it's going to be poorly tolerated. And those are the patients that you'd wanna target for a surgical intervention. And then how you do that and how you establish it, I think is, is a different moving target. As Colin said, even the techniques that we use and the recurrence rates and these things, these are all things that we're just learning on an ongoing basis. I mean, just yesterday we heard results about the river stent preliminary experiences, the stent that's specifically designed for the dural venous sinuses. I know that I've changed my practice after consultation actually with you, Philippe, and others to uh, extend my stenting quite a bit larger than the area of stenosis. So the technical changes as we understand what causes disease recurrence change our practice. So if I could start the trial tomorrow and recruit 200 patients, half of them shunted, half of them stented, I think that it would look very different than a trial that was started five years ago. But all of these things are moving targets. I think an ideal surgical pop or an ideal trial population would have moderate to severe ophthalmological disease 
and fit those criteria from a very objective basis before starting. And I think that the critical thing to do, if I were to be able to wave a magic wand, is just to establish some sanity in the application of this technology. Because unfortunately, I think as I think what Colin and I talk about in different perspectives in our point counterpoint, and again, I think there's more agreement than there's disagreement, is that it is easy to observe the misuse of this technique because the barrier is low, because it's minimally invasive, because it's a straightforward procedure and it's not a shunt, that there is a lot of liberal application of this technology to patients who likely don't benefit or the benefit is very unclear. So even the best trial is not necessarily going to capture all these patients, but hopefully it would modulate and maybe bring some sanity to some of the behavior that I think is out there when a treatment like this is potentially over-applied. Just thinking out loud a bit, a trial would have great value in improving efficacy, of course. You know, we've seen that with stroke thrombectomy, and we know the impact that a positive randomized trial can have and and really establishing clearly for everybody the benefit of what we're doing. But really, the, the devil is in all the details and getting a procedure, really optimizing the technique. And I think, you know, as Mike mentioned, getting stents that are built to purpose, delivery systems, better understanding, recurrence, you know, as far as the technique goes, a lot of those things really probably, it's probably early to put something to a test at this point yet. And I think a good registry data, good prospective data to define patient populations and the technique, I think are still valuable before launching a trial. The last thing that we would want to do is to be, to launch a trial at a target population that may not benefit, you know, like, for example, a headache only population with a quality of life outcome, any complications that we have could overcome benefits that we have with headache. And there's also the recurrence rate issues. So I think we have to be very careful about defining um, what we want to tackle here and uh, and then how we would want to study it. And I think we're best served really by something that is really mechanistically related and and quantifiable, like the visual field measurements that, that Mike is describing. Uh, it's tough to noodle it all, all through, but I, th- I think there's a lot. I think it probably is early for a, a trial. I think more technique, more data, more, more device development is probably required in a registry or good prospective single arm uh, ways before we identify really the, the target that, that we want. And I'd be curious to hear from both of you what you think of that. I I completely agree with you. Um, The patient population that I think really vexes me and and challenges the performance of these trials are the patients that have moderate to severe visual loss. Those patients essentially are in extremis, Colin, as we know, losing vision if not daily, then weekly. And and these are patients now that are being treated locally. They don't have to go far to, to get shunted or get stented. Uh, it's a procedure now that's being done throughout this country and, and throughout the world. So 
I think that that in and of itself also limits the target population. I mean, obviously, that's the group we'd love to study the most. Those are the ones where we're going to see the, the signal and the noise as a signal, as Mike had referred to. But at the same time, those are a relatively small group of patients that are, are likely receiving treatment at their local institution and may be hesitant to, to uh, enroll in a, a double arm trial. So I think that remains a major challenge. Colin, you had mentioned the negative trials, and I liked your summary at the end of, of the counterpoint listing the trials that, that we're now paying you know, the price for in terms of not being able to perform certain procedures. Can you, can you just highlight that and how important you think that is? Yeah, I'd sum it up into two categories in a, in a way. There are the trials um, that challenged our assumptions about what, what the disease really is, like the COURAGE trial for chronic stable angina. You know, th- this idea that these flow-limiting coronary stenoses that are causing angina, but in a chronic stable way, that, that mechanically that... Um, would provide a better outcome, angioplasty and stenting. And that COURAGE trial showed really equivalent outcomes in the two arms. Less angina with exertion in the, in the treated, the stented group, but no change in um, risk of MI or death or anything else. And that was a trial that really kind of shook things up and I think steered people to the idea of a vulnerable plaque and that these other plaques really aren't likely to rupture and cause an acute coronary syndrome. And so I think Good. That's a good trial. That's one that sort of challenges our assumptions. Other ones too, things like WASD in a, in a similar way, uh, the warfarin versus aspirin for symptomatic intracranial disease, or I believe also one uh, arthroscopy for knee osteoarthritis. Things that people were commonly doing, where the trial showed us that these commonly performed procedures weren't providing benefit, and we really do have to there's a real burden and an onus on us to prove that what we do works um, because, you know, we all, we're, we're vulnerable to, to bias in case series data. We tend to not remember or see some of the complications that happen and those get accounted for better in a prospective uh, way. Uh, so uh, the trials are really super important for really clearly advancing the field. However, and I think this is what you're getting at too. There are, are trials that that are premature and hurt us in, in some ways. And I think Sampras kind of straddles both of those in a way. Sam, the Sampras trial, the, the stenting uh, versus aggressive medical management for prevention of recurrent ischemic stroke for intracranial athro, that that really ended intracranial angioplasty and stenting for symptomatic ICAD. And I think given the devices at the day of the day probably more harm than benefit. That's what the trial showed us. And it also showed us that there's the medical management could be improved and could provide a better outcomes too. But the net result of that really was to really stifle any real good development of better devices, better subgroups. It's created a challenge for doing that because the evidence is against it. And so that, that, that trial kind of cuts both ways. And it's a cautionary one in making sure that we really do have the best device and the best patient population before launching a trial. I think another corollary, so while it's kind of those wheels are spinning, uh, you'll have to tell me if this makes any sense at all, but uh, 
you know, you think about thrombectomy for acute ischemic stroke, right? And you look back at the first devices we had, the Mercy Snare, and you look at IMS um, three and its failure to show a benefit of thrombectomy, which um, thrombectomy devices were early phased. There were a few uh, stent trevers in that trial um, and some suction devices, but early, early gen- first generation ones too. I would argue that if you did, if you'd done a randomized trial of the Mercy Snare for thrombectomy for acute ischemic stroke, it would have failed. And if that were the first, if that were the first and only trial that it certainly, if I was the operator of that trial, it would have failed <laughs> because that device never worked for me. But it worked for some people. But anyway, but that that could have been a crushing blow. But fortunately, there was device iteration, there was investment, there were subgroups who were identified. We got. Uh, CTA, CTP to better identify patients. And then we're look where we are for thrombectomy for stroke. So, well, I, yeah, I, so I hear what you're saying. And fortunately or unfortunately, it's a, it's a relatively smaller group of patients that, um, that suffer from IIH in comparison to those suffering from uh, intracranial thrombosis. So that also limits the pool from which we can catch. Uh, I just want to conclude because I don't want to take up too much of your guys' time, but Mike, you had mentioned, you touched briefly upon some of the other uses of intracranial stents, or I should say perhaps misuses of intracranial stenting for venous sinus disease. Uh, can you talk about some of the the new quote-unquote applications and disease states that uh, that you're seeing uh, people use these devices for? Sure. I think I want to be careful in painting with a broad brush that there are likely IIH-related diseases or even non-IIH but cerebral venous sinus diseases that are just being recognized in some really good, objective, and careful, thoughtful research going on, certainly like Matthew Amon's group, uh, at UCSF has been really leading this to look at things like pulsatile tinnitus that are quality of life detriment symptoms. It could be very difficult to manage, but are not IIH. And I think that type of objective research, that careful approach that he's actually outlined with his group in the pages of the journal is a really good example of somebody who is thinking about the application of this surgical technique to a new set of diseases in a responsible and scientific way. And so I think there are applications from which on an individual per patient basis, there could be objective criteria that would demonstrate efficacy in the use of an endovascular treatment for venous sinus disease. Certainly patients with jugular diverticula or sinus diverticula or venous sinus stenosis that that does cause debilitating pulsatile tinnitus. These are things that could be considered. I think you're you're a little bit on an island in terms of how aggressive to be. As uh, Colin mentioned, if you have a severe complication while trying to take care of somebody who's losing vision, that's, I think, on par with the relatively sobering and high complication rate of VP shunting, which is a bad treatment, but the best we have. But if you're causing a severe intracranial complication to take care of a patient who may have a multifactorial headache disorder or a non-debilitating pulsatile tinnitus, I think you're on very, very shaky ground. 
And so I think that to me, the, the good applications for this technology outside of patients with a really classic IIH are, are only to be approached very cautiously, very objectively, and with a really frank conversation with a patient, you know, people think that minimally invasive treatment is, is safer and it's not necessarily safer. It's just less invasive. There's less of an incision. So I think there are definitely those types of reasonable applications. There are patients who are IIH without papilledema, but have documented elevated ICPs, which is a real disease. But what do we do with that? And I take care of a few of those patients every year. And I evaluate them for stenting. I have a conversation with our headache neurologists, our neuro-ophthalmologists, our CSF diversion specialists. And then we make a per patient decision on whether to treat these patients. But that's a very long, rigorous process with invasive ICP monitoring. I think that there are applications for this outside of IIH. I think what I would caution people and really strongly hope to avoid is the type of situation that I unfortunately see in my clinic not infrequently, which is a patient who may or may not have IIH, who has received stenting on very limited diagnostic workup and with very limited exploration of non-surgical treatment options. And those patients are always disappointed. Either they were stented because of a uh, stenosis that did not meet criteria for pressure measurements, or they received no pressure measurements, which I think is appalling, or they were stented for mild disease or headache only. And I think that the problem here is that, I, as I counsel my patients, as I'm sure you both do, if you're taking care of a patient with IIH and they have headache, I, I tell them, I don't want to be glib, but I sort of tell them, I don't really, I don't really care about your headache. Not that I don't care. I do care about their headache. But I have no way of knowing whether or not it's going to change. And if it didn't change at all after treatment, I wouldn't be surprised because this is a, a disease that causes blindness. So I think if your indications for venous sinus, stent, venous sinus stenting are headache or you're applying it to diseases with, without objective ophthalmological or other neurological criteria, I think you and your patients are going to be disappointed. And if you have a complication, which is a non-zero percent chance, I think you're on very thin ice. So I would just call on the societies and the people who are listening to this podcast, which is probably a self-selecting group, to really police yourselves into considering objective and careful, thoughtful application of what is considered a relatively easy technical procedure, but really should be limited in its role to a, a careful selection of patients. And I, I tried to put that in the title of my point, despite my attempt to be enthusiastic, I did sneak in the word select patients. And that's because it's not all patients, as we know, that could benefit from this technique. And I think if you do it carefully, you will do less of them, but you will have a much, much higher success rate. Agreed. I, I think that's an, an excellent summation, Mike, of some of the, the challenges we're facing. And I'd like to conclude by thanking you both again, taking to your, your time from the SNIS annual meeting in San Diego to join us today to discuss really this, uh, this controversial and popular uh, topic now for neurointerventionalists. As I mentioned at the outset, this point and counterpoint will be uh, published shortly in a print issue of the JNIS. They are both currently on the JNIS website. 
I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I was struck, as Colin had mentioned, by by how similar many of the points that both of you made in, in your, your articles and the careful, uh, objective, thoughtful nature that you took to addressing this subject. So I thank you for your time today and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Philippe. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thank you.